around friends, why hurry? Let's all stay a little longer. See my blue-eyed Sally, she lives away down on Shinbone Alley. The number on the gate, the number on the door, and the next house over is a grocery store. Stay all night, stay a little longer, dance all night, dance a little longer. Pull off your coat, throw it in the corner, don't see why you don't stay a little longer. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, I am pleased as I'll get out to have George Saunders. Welcome, George. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks, for, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for talking on the radio. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs> um, just, to, just to start us off, I'm going to, let's see, I've got many of your books here in the studio, um, and so we'll see what... what um, what we end up talking about the most, George, but mostly this is a time capsule of you. Oh boy. You right now. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners might want to just doze off in advance. <laughs> no, no. Um, and uh, your, let's see, your most uh, recent book that came out from Riverhead in 2007 in paperback um, was the Brain Dead Megaphone Essays. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to read from the back your bio. Uh, did you write this one? No, no, George? no, no. no? We, have okay. profe- we have professional help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this, as, as writ by professional help, George Saunders is the author of In Persuasion Nation, The Brief and Frightening Reign of Phil, Pastoralia, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, and a children's book, uh, The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp. He was named one of the best American writers under 40 by The New Yorker and one of Entertainment Weekly's most creative people. In 2006, he was the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He writes for The New Yorker, Harper's, and GQ and is the recipient of multiple National Magazine Awards. He teaches at Syracuse University. All true. (laughs) All true. (laughs) Nothing to take issue with. And it's all downhill from there. (laughs) No. He entered the autumn of his years. <laughs> no. The, no. That'll be the next bio, right? right. Next. That's right. So you don't so you don't um you don't write those cuz a lot of people say, "Well, I had to write it." And then, you know, and that must and it's kind of weird to speak about yourself in the third person, yeah, but especially I guess, if you have a, if you have a Catholic background, then you're always kind of putting yourself down, you know. George Saunders is full of it. He's, he's <laughs> he thinks very he's Mr. Big Shot. <laughs> He teaches at Syracuse, but not well. <laughs> it's right. You're like what um, uh, Janet from one of your stories. Um, I think it's Pastoralio in the cave would call like the Mister Big Snot Nose guy. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, <that's> <laughs> you get well. You get that inner nun hardwired. You know to keep you down the size. Right. I should have known that you were probably raised Catholic mm-hmm. because of the story, um, or no, rather the essay where you um, you thank Esther Forbes, yeah. the writer Esther Forbes, and it's because a young nun, nun <laughs> teacher. Uh, yeah, there was a, you, I had a nun in, in third grade in Chicago, a nun uh, named Sister Lynette that I had a huge crush on, and, uh, and she gave me a copy of Johnny Tremaine. She kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, this is kind of a hard book for, for a third grader, but I think you can handle it. And of course, that along with the crush really made me aspire to finish it. And uh, 
and I, and I actually loved the book, but also it had, she had, I think it was a Caldecott winner, so it had a, a gold stamp on it, a gold medal. And I was so proud of it, and I would carry it around with that facing out, you know, so that people would see that I was reading an award winner. It was song. foreshadowing, because well, we've just listed your award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was actually, what I loved about that one was that she gave it to me, that she thought enough to give me. And also that the uh, Esther Forbes has, has a really distinctive prose style, and I'd never really uh, read anybody at that point that had put so much uh, thought in, in, into sentences. So it was kind of shocking how, how much I loved it. And I read it you know, over and over again that year. And I, need, I need to check it out now. <laughs> it's, no, it really Johnny is a good book. it's a really beautiful book. It's, but the funny thing was that in, this, in the book, the kid is uh, he's a sort of really virtuosic uh, silversmith, kind of a smart, it's kind of Mr. Big Shot. And, uh, and one time, partly from sabotage and partly from hubris, he, he gets some silver spilled on his hand and it, it like... Uh, melts all his fingers together and he's ruined. They put him out of the, out of his job and all this kind of stuff. And somehow, I, I love the first part, you know, his sort of fall from grace. And after that, there's a redemption phase, which I read once, but I didn't really like it. So I'd kind of obsessively <laughs> read the first part. The downhill slide was really... <laughs> and the way that his whole world turned on him after that uh, accident was really appealing to me. Some sick uh, way. Why? Yeah. Why I don't do know. Think? I, I think for the same reason that I like Charlie Brown, that, that kind of idea that... Um, well, actually, I think it has something to do with this idea that uh, if, well, this is a pretty cynical notion, but here's what I think. If life is going well and you're in a nice position, uh, in a certain way, the um, that's an illusion. I mean, that could easily be, be stripped away. And so when I was a kid, I think that was really uh, amazing to me that your good fortune was conditional, you know, that it actually wasn't necessarily a... Lasting. It wasn't lasting, and it also wasn't a result of anything you had done. So for me, it became kind of a theme throughout my life that, that I'm always exhilarated when I re-realize that, that, you know, even though we think our good fortune has something to do with our virtue, in fact, it's mostly just chance, and it can and sometimes does just go away in a heartbeat. So something about that was, I think, at the heart of that. that. Do, do you feel like you're, you're sort of on a precipice usually, George? Because it would seem like... Like things are, you know, <clears throat> really going well. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It isn't. It isn't that I, uh, so much that I'm worried for myself, but just the idea that um, it, when you really take a step back, any good health or good luck or whatever is is uh, conditional. It's 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 luck, really. And so, if in fact, I mean, I think most of us uh, in America, for sure, get through life without too many. You know, there's no starvation generally or genocide. But for me, the the thing that bugs me, and maybe it's just kind of neurotic, but the idea that that that's fine. You could, I can, let's say that someone could say, yeah, George, you're going to live to 107 years old, sexually active to the end. You know, a thriving <laughs> specimen of manhood, no problems. It's it's just the idea that it could it could be taken away. And then every day that it isn't is sort of just, uh, you could say it's, it's a gift from God or it's luck or it's whatever it is. But that, right. that to me is something that gets under my skin a little bit. And uh, I know, I, th I think you just have to figure out what to do with it. And and so to me, it kind And not of, to have it be a negative, something active on you, right. acting on you in a negative That's sort right. of and way. That's right. And because if suddenly because of that, you don't appreciate the fact that you're in a nice radio studio with nice people and you're not starving. And you know, then you're an idiot equally, you know. So, so mm -hmm. I, I think in a way... Uh, this might be stretching, but but my fiction has been a way of kind of dwelling in that possibility, you know, sort of saying, all right, so uh, today's pretty good for me. What if it wasn't? What uh, is there? A, <clears throat> is there a way to sort of mechanically imagine yourself less lucky than you are? Well, there is. It's a storytelling. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my stories have a, a you know kind of a worst day ever 
quality to them that I think has to do with that tendency. Maybe. Right, because even the first line isn't um, of Pastoralia. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Sure. That or, or close? It's, it's actually pronounced Keith. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a lot of people make that mistake, so don't exactly. don't feel bad. Exactly. I'm devastated now, George. Yeah. Okay. Like your first line from Keith <laughs> is, uh, "I have to admit, I'm not feeling my best." Right. Not yeah. that I'm doing so bad, but yeah. yeah so it, yeah. it really is. It's it's throughout. So well, I always my uh, one of my mantras is in. Uh, the story Gooseberries, Chekhov has this line where he says, um, uh, um, every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer to remind him by his constant tappings that not everyone is happy. And it's, you know, uh, sooner or later, life will show him the happy man, its claws as well. So I think in a certain way, I mean, it's this claws. was, it's wow. claws. Yeah. So, I mean, I, for me, somehow fiction had, has become kind of a way of ritually, you know, being that unhappy man with a hammer for myself, just to remind myself that that um, what looks like permanent good fortune is actually mm. just sort of a trick, a little trick of the of fate. You know, and the yeah. illusions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm so I'm so happy to hear not that, <laughs> not so that I want you to, you to be you're suffering. <laughs> um, but no, because often I, I also feel this sense of urgency, like to bring mm. to things. And, and I think it's because I feel like it'll be taken away, which yeah. is sort of what it sounds like you you use in a way, you said, yeah. maybe even to fuel the fiction. Yeah. And so also I think wonderful. the idea that, you know, if you uh, just this this thing that we were taught as Catholic kids, uh, and I think the nuns catch a lot of grief, but this is one thing they were good at. The idea that you um, should be able to step out of your fortune position and look across the river and go, wow, that guy is really suffering. That woman's having a bad day. And that that actually is the, the essential part of your job here on earth is to step out of yourself and, and imagine, you know, there but for the grace of God, go I. So, I mean, that, that seems to me a valid way to, you know, to, to work through stories or a, re- a reason to work through stories. Right, right. Uh, um, it's, it's interesting when I was reading... Um, the let's see Vonnegut Vonnegut in Sumatra essay in um, the brain dead megaphone uh, you had you s- said that you were a young man uh, maybe, maybe 24 mm-hmm. was it when you were in Sumatra yeah. and you were um, there with a crew sort of in a uh, out of the way location looking for oil for oil yeah it was a- and you'd have you went uh, you'd have uh, to go get some books uh, mm. once every couple of weeks, and those were would you'd have to make do with until right. the next um, day out <laughs> yep. came. Um, and you had been influenced heavily by Hemingway, and so this m- maybe was by going to Sumatra. Was that like um, intentional on your part to try and put yourself somewhere? Um, well, I think it, it was kind of it, yeah. It was an attempt to sort of put together that you know young writer bio dos- dossier kind of thing. But the the beauty of it was I had never been out of the country at that point, and we were. Uh, part of an oil crew that was really kind of raping and pillaging the, I mean, we were going into virgin wilderness areas and prospecting for oil and tearing it up pretty good. And then all the money would go to Jakarta, you know, away from this region. Uh, So it was really great for me because I had gone to an undergrad school that was kind of, uh, it was an engineering school. And at that time it was sort of, I think Reagan was, it was in Colorado. Reagan was president and the prevailing ethos was kind of right wing. And, and I'd read uh, Ayn Rand, which who who I loved. And so I had kind of a a Reagan-esque view of things just, just because, and then, so to go to Sumatra and just every day see the kind of human fallout from those kind of ideas. And nobody was, was hitting me over the head with any kind of dogma or anything, but just to see that, okay, um, 
you can read Ayn Rand and say that engineers and capitalists are actually the saviors of the world. And then in Singapore, I used to walk by this construction site uh, where after hours, they would bring in a team of old women, I mean like 70-year-old women, uh, to, to clean the rubble, the rocks. So this kind of hallucinogenic thing where you'd be stumbling home drunk from some bar, you know, doing mock Hemingway in your head, and then suddenly in this floodlight area, you'd see all these old women, seven, literally 70, 75 years old, each with a big boulder in their arms, lugging it off to the side, you know. So it's sort of by attrition over the two years I was there, I, my politics changed. And I don't think I even knew that's what was going on. But to see, um, you know, just... Was the, there anyone there to talk to no, about this? No. Or were you, was it something that you... Had you started writing by that point? Because you I, had Hemingway as maybe I had started a sort of journaling in this kind of mock Hemingway mode, but I hadn't read enough to really be doing anything very interesting. And most of the people that I worked with... Uh, it was, there was no, um, the, the talk was more or less just, aren't we lucky to be here and having so much fun? Yeah. And, you know, because we could do, uh, we worked four weeks on and two weeks off. And at that age, I, it was, I was making what was a lot of money for me and it wasn't taxed and so on. So you could do this kind of weird uh, theme park deal where you could fly from Sumatra into Singapore, which is beautiful and exotic and dazzling, and then go wherever you wanted. You know, I, I would go to the uh, the Khyber Pass one time and to Russia and uh, up the Malay Peninsula, always for two weeks. So you'd go for for four, come back for two, mm. and you were totally, it was like, a, I don't remember, there, was a, there used to be a cartoon show called Mr. Wizard, and this guy would go back in time, and whenever he got in trouble, he would recite this little mantra and be whisked out of it, you know. Oh. <laughs> so that's exactly what <laughs> this you, was like. Did you have a mantra too? Yeah, it was, it just, it was a card, it was credit like, card. go back to know? the hotel, Oh, yeah. yeah. No, but you'd be, you know, you'd be, I was visa. arrested in Moscow and all this. And, you know, it's kind of scary until you don't want it to be, at which time you just bail out and go back to, uh, the, to the crew. So that was a but really- But you were arrested in Moscow. Yeah, I detained, but- you know, but but it, but the whole thing was so wonderful because you start to see. You're not going to tell the story. Oh no, it was, it was kind of boring. I, mean, I just <laughs> was taking photographs somewhere I wasn't supposed to, and, and assassinated Brezhnev. And, you know, so anyway, <laughs> nothing really. That, but but so it was it was a really great um, kind of full body politiza- politicization. You know, uh, that I didn't even know the name for, but then very slowly, uh, and it all kind of for me it sort of capped in um, reading Steinbeck later on, and sort of going, oh, that's what he's talking about. You know. Oh, okay, well, like, let's take a short break, George, and then we'll come back with, with Steinbeck and maybe Kurt Vonnegut a little bit, too. All right, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. I 
right or wrong, I'm still in love with you. Yeah. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writer Show. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, George Saunders is in the studio. Woo! If we had a studio <laughs> audience, everyone would be going mm. wild right now. <laughs> and Yeah, I wish, in fact, I was looking um, at your website, George, the saundersaundersaunders.com, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and you have some links to different... Um, different like the media blitzes parts yes, and, yes. and and the um and the great megaphone one with the um but anyway and Stephen Colbert you went on his show I did, I did. so how was that with him you know running you know getting all the applause and then yeah, running no, up it to was, the table well it was fun he's a nice you know a nice guy and before he sort of says you know I, I'm I'm going to portray an idiot and you feel free to, you know, <laughs> disabuse me of my idiocy. And I, but, and so I thought, oh yeah, great. And I said, well, let's really mix it up. Okay. And then you go out there and suddenly he's grown about three feet taller and he's really aggressive. And uh, so it was fun. You Cause know. he's pretty tall to begin with. He's pretty he? tall to begin with, but he got really big. And, uh, but you know, it was, it was interesting. I mean, it's an interesting six minutes. that feels like one minute and it's, you know, very intense. And, and, and the trick for the, the person appearing is that you, are not supposed to get laughs and you can't actually because the audience doesn't like you, you know, automatically. So it's really... Oh, really? Yeah, and so part of your job is to act... In my case, I kept saying, "Act like an offended academic," because that's kind of what your job is. And then, um, oh, so you actually go on as a, I didn't realize that you're also acting when you go on the well, show. Well, I mean, like, you don't have persona. to, but okay. you sort of know that he's that's what that he's, he's doing, doing a persona. Yeah. And so it's a kind of a delicate act because if you're too much of a smart aleck, it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, if you come out doing shtick that's supposed to be funny, that would be terrible. And also, if you if you attack him too directly as a real conservative, that doesn't make sense since everyone knows he's not. He's not so it's, right. it's you have to really play it by ear. <laughs> And uh, so it was, it was, I came off and I was sort of hyperventilating, <laughs> like, God, what the, and, and then, he, you know, and then suddenly he's really nice again and just is very sweet and, you, you know, so. <laughs> but you actually got like the, um, you did get to have the last word on that clip or not last word, like it was some competition, but, and I could see, I thought he broke character a little bit when yeah. you said sometimes a pox popsicle is just a pop it was really fun and because just like you could yeah, see yeah. the light but even a couple minutes before that he was so, leading me we, i could okay. feel we sort of locked eyes and i and i saw where he was going and i think we had a little bit of telepathic uh, uh showbiz communique <laughs> <laughs> that's great well it's good to know you can you can do that oh it's good god to have once the... <laughs> you do it once and then go home for the rest of your life um well, well, let's get back to Sumatra just for a moment. Um, yeah, cause, so there, because you wrote an essay in the Brain Dead Megaphone with um, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Vonnegut and Sumatra, and that's where you said you read Slaughterhouse-Five right. and those, the pile of books that you brought back. Right. You, the trick was you'd go with a suitcase and get whatever was going to sustain you for that four weeks when you were back in Sumatra. So if you didn't make the right choices, you'd you know, burn through your books in three or four days and have nothing. So uh, I'd heard about them and I didn't, uh, and I was sort of predisposed to Hemingway. Ser- uh, Thomas Wolfe also serious, mm. even though I was raised- Look homeward angel. Yeah, something yeah. real earnest and lyrical and stuff like that. And, and um even though I was raised in Chicago, very funny family, lots of jokes. I, I, you know, I think in the way that someone uh, who isn't raised in a particularly um, artistic, you know, not not a bunch of writers around or artists. I, I, 
didn't think that whatever was natural could be very useful. So in other words, humor didn't really belong in literature. Literature was high-minded and it was somber and it was tragic. Uh, so when I read Vonnegut, at first I was a little put off because I knew he had this great material, you know, World War II uh, stuff that he'd lived through. And I wanted to see it done sort of in a Hemingway-esque way. And of course, what he does is something much crazier. And I think actually perfect, you know, more more beautiful. But at that time, I, I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, why did he sully his deep tragic experience with space aliens? You know? But yet you kept reading it, you said. I, yeah, so I mean, you, it was you, your initial was repulsion, but yet you were then com- intrigued right. enough to like disturbed and kept reading it but i was too much of a lunkhead to recognize <laughs> that being just you know that the keeping reading is actually a pretty good diagnostic of what you might want to do for me it was right. I, actually at that point i thought difficult reading meant good writing you know that that if you, you if you couldn't understand it if it was mystifying if you had you know misidentified the gender of the main character that was good <laughs> you know that meant that it was right. a great novel so so you're even in the though drawing I, room in the first part of the sentence right. and you're out in alaska uh, suddenly, and the suddenly end, there's no yeah. roof anymore <laughs> right. but um i i and i've been you know a big fan like people of my generation of, of monty python and steve martin and all this and uh you know and just uh like anybody recognized the raw, beautiful energy of some of those Python skits, mm. but that that would be literary was this, the jump that I couldn't quite make. And it took me a number of years actually to figure that out. But that's so interesting because what we started talking about um, here was your thanking Esther Forbes, mm-hmm. who you came across in third grade, right. thanks to Sister yeah. Loretta, Loretta. Lynette. Lynette. Actually. Oh, God. That's okay. Sorry, that's Sister right. Lynette. Yeah. <laughs> Should be emblazoned. Sister on Loretta was too. another story altogether. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring this flashbacks. Know. <laughs> Can we take a break? <laughs> exactly. Here, have some water. Have some, yeah, cold a cold compress. Yeah. But speaking of compress, like you, you mentioned, like there you you found direct nice original nice language. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful compression, yeah. right? <laughs> Did you know I was going? Because <laughs> you say on rocky islands, gulls woke. Yeah, that was an Esther Forbes sentence, and I when I as a kid I noticed that she didn't have a comma in there. It wasn't on rocky islands. Gulls woke. It was on Rocky Islands. Gulls woke, and I think that was the first time I realized that neurologically I, I was hypersensitive to that kind of thing, and I got a lot of pleasure out of the fact that she had written it that way and would go around kind of you know composing little sentences in my head to describe what was going on, and uh, so that was and you know that window opened in third grade and closed again, and it wasn't it was many years before I I felt that again, but just that sense that it really does matter how. You, you say something, uh, not only in terms of correctness, but in terms of being able to convey a little extra bit of reality just in syntax or, or punctuation and stuff like that. So that, that really has been sort of an abiding interest of, uh, of mine. And, and the, the writers that I love, the, the one thing they seem to have in common is that, that they have spent a lot of time honing sentences to do whatever it is they want them to do. And, and loved as sort of a core group of writers or writers that you're finding um, in different you Both, know, years? Both, really. I mean, I know, in other words, we do, I teach at Syracuse, and one of the things that I'll do sometimes is just to clear the air in the workshop, because you know how that can sometimes get a little stifling. I'll just uh, randomly take a first paragraph of six or seven stories, some old classics, some new stuff, just photocopy the first paragraphs. And then just uh, have everybody read them right in, in the workshop and just react to them. And I think that's, very important to remember that the way you interact with text is going to be a pretty good clue as to how you will write that that pleasure is a valid uh idea in, in writing and if something gets you off a sentence is thrilling that's important it's not trivial it's actually the way that we 
are propelled through a story is just by sentence by sentence sort of hopping from rock to rock in that way you know at least not, I don't think everybody reads that way but some people do and so I, I like to try to remind myself and my students that ultimately it's the sentences and, and if you don't have those if those aren't giving pleasure at every pass then all of the other stuff theme and character and political but it can't happen unless the, the sentence by sentence progress is pleasurable so are you do you also write poems George are you? I, I have but I don't mm-hmm. have you know it's funny I've, I've noticed Noticed in uh, that I, the um, my talent such as it is is a very very thin ledge and poetry I like it and I kind of I can do like maybe you know on a scale of one to ten a, a kind of decent six you know but somehow for some reason it isn't the I don't really have the the, the heart for it somehow e- even though you have that deep attention to language because yeah. to, to feel the the absence or presence of a comma there is actually yeah I should such be I should be able to but for some reason I, there's I, I I noticed um you know there's that part of your development as a writer or any kind of artist where you you know what you want to do well I've recognized that as kind of a stupid phase because was, actually oh, okay. well for me it was almost my whole life where I would sit around, you know, in grad school thinking, well, I want to be Hemingway plus some Graham Greene, but a little bit cool like <laughs> Kerouac. And, you know, uh, and I think that's healthy. And But ultimately, I think the actual process of being an artist is much more frightening, which is to say, yeah, pal, you want to be that. But what are you really? Right. You know, out of all the things you can do, is there some tiny sliver that you can do better than anyone else? If you, if the first of all, if there is, lucky you. Second of all, do you recognize it when you do it? Third of all, can you get there reliably? Fourth of all, can you push yourself out into that sort of iconic space, recognizing that it, it isn't necessarily what you wanted to do? You know, I, I think I would like to be Chekhov, but good luck. He's already been done. And, and when I try to do Chekhov, I do a pale imitation. So then you have to get into that scary place where you're sort of embracing your own defects and neuroses and uh, things about yourself you're maybe not crazy about and saying, well, weirdly, you know, when I write a theme park story, it's slightly sci-fi, which I don't even like sci-fi. It's more interesting when I try to do a historical novel about, you know, about uh, the Civil War or something. So right. uh, that to, I found it exhilarating and also a little depressing that, that that's really the job is to push yourself out into that place where you don't really know what you're doing and you're not even sure you like it, but it's at least has energy. Yes, and the energy of like these, of creating these bursts of pleasures that you're exactly, and and that's really all there is to it. There is, you know, you you can dress it up, and after the fact, you always do. You know, you talk about the, your critique of the of of advertising culture or patriarchy or whatever. But I think really, it, it's just, um, and I'm being particularly honest because I'm coming off a period of not interviewing much, so I, <laughs> I've just been writing. But but I mean, the truth is, I think it really is about trying to make a little fun, make fun. You know, you sit there and write something that will that gives you pleasure in the writing of it and will give off pleasure on the other end. And you don't, as, as uh, what's your name used to say, you don't know what it is. You know, you don't necessarily know uh, the nature of the pleasure or if it has political content or if it's righteous. You just know that it's fun, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and in that fun, like something true about it as well. Like that seems to be. In, yeah. Although, or, I, well, no, no, I think you're right. Or, I think you're right. Although I also noticed in, in, in actually doing it, that's not a thought. It's It's more or less just, it's either kicking or it's not. And uh-huh. and then after the fact, you, I mean, I think you're probably right there. I mean, that's why it's pleasurable because it's truthful or it's compressed or whatever. But I do notice that in the process of, of actually doing it, it's much better if all that stuff falls away and you're just being a real cold hearted assessor of pleasure. You know, that was, huh. that's funny or not funny. I don't care if it's true. <laughs> Even if it's false, I'm going to say it if it's funny, you know, that, that right. Kind of thing. right. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so do you think is, um, is part of this when you're, 
okay, false can also be like this imagined, like your imagined mm-hmm. settings where these stories seem to be in the future, right. often in your fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so is that part of, is that critical then to this releasing yourself? For me, it is only because I'm uh, dopey. You know, for me, if I, if I say uh, I'm going to write a story about my actual life, the energy drops. So for me, as an artifice, it's been really useful to say, it's the Virgin Mary theme park. And therefore, I, it, that exempts certain modes of expression that are dull and forces me to do stuff that's a little more high wire, you know. So in, in, in a sense, I, it, it's really just to, it's kind of like if you knew that every time you tried to sing slow jazz, you would suck, then you're... <laughs> Probably very true. Well, but, but, but you knew that if you, if you sang marches, you were terrific, then you would have to make sure that the piano player did a march. So for me, the alter, alternate reality stuff is more mostly that, really. But I've also come to develop a model of fiction that's more like um, your job is not actually to make uh, a picture of what life is quote unquote really like. You're just making a little word machine, a little machine of words that uh, has some relation to real life, but we don't know what it is. And it certainly doesn't have to be linear, you know? And we know that when you're reading uh, that f- a story about that imagined world, part of the pleasure is your mind trying to map that world onto the real one. But what, what's sort of fun is that it does not have to be linear. It, it can be a funhouse mirror relation to it. But the pleasure, I think, comes from your mind's holding the two things simultaneously. You know, So that's liberating because it means you don't really have to worry about truth, I don't think. You don't have to really worry about you know, your agenda or your political beliefs. You just have to make a, a little scale model that uh, gives off some energy, I think. Yeah. yeah. This machine of words, this yeah. little machine of words. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, um, George, let's take a short break and we'll come back. You're listening to the living writer show. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and think about the girl And never ever think of cows has learned its lesson You'd be hers If only she would call In the weeds Welcome back. If you're just joining us, um, you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. <laughs> and today, George Saunders. Um, so, And we were just talking about... Um, the little word machine yeah. that um, that gives off puffs of energy. <laughs> I wasn't. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds insane. <laughs> I just got here. <laughs> well, this yeah. well, this sock puppet that you brought, George, was yeah. talking about that. <laughs> um, no, okay, not that. But what? But what you said was that. Um, it allowed you this this fiction, this this creation, and this kind of this setting up um, uh, the Virgin Mary theme park, for example, like uh, allowed you to write the the in a way that you yeah. felt um, if with your 
I don't know why I'm trying to recap. I'm sure everyone's been <laughs> listening. No one, but we probably didn't lose anyone through the Sinatra. But but that made me think. But whoa, um, you write really well with yourself in the story or in the real story. Yeah. Your your nonfiction, which is this the Brain Dead Megaphone essays. Well, um, so so how do you so so reconcile that, well, George? No, no, I can't. No, no, no reconciliation. No, I I um. I really love those pieces. Partly, you know, because the thing is uh, about writing and writers or art is that you you always have. Uh, I think you tend to make oppositions. So, either it's the word machine, blah 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 blah, or it's somebody writing from life. But to me, that's a. I still have that Hemingway love. I still have that desire to go to you know Cambodia and write about it. And so I think what with the nonfiction, it gives me a chance to kind of indulge that impulse and go to these places and try to make sense of it. Uh, and, and actually, you know, I, I did it in part because I uh, had hit a bit of a midlife doldrums, you know, where I was kind of, I knew so well what I was doing in fiction that it was becoming a little bit flat, just to, or just starting to. And my daughter sort of challenged me to go on this Dubai trip, you know, and, and uh, so I went and actually it was really wonderful just to see that. Well, for example, in my fiction, I don't do a lot of physical description. Uh, well, on those trips, you kind of have to. You know, it's a nonfiction piece. You have to do that work. Uh, I also don't... Although you uh, would have a photographer with you, I'm imagining. Not in for this some book, of them, For but, some of them. But with a yeah. magazine. Maybe. Right. But even there, it's, you know, you still for the sort of health of the piece, there's got to be this thing where you say, you know, we're standing in the main exhibition hall and, you know. Uh, so that was really fun to see that even though it's not my natural inclination, you you know, you can pull it off. You can you can polish it up. Or uh, on those pieces, for example, to go on an eight-day trip and you come back with what you come back with and there's no invention allowed and all you can really do is shape. Uh, so that was interesting for me. So I, I, I really uh, enjoyed them because they made me step out of my habitual assumptions about fiction. And now that I'm writing fiction again, I'm, uh, I'm just vaguely aware that I have some resources I hadn't been tapping yet. So that kind of makes it fun. Like what? What do you? Well, I mean, for example, in those pieces, there they were about twelve thousand words each, and there was a fairly tight time frame. You know, maybe three or four months, which for me is I could never write twelve thousand words of fiction in that short of a time. So it meant that uh, you had to be a little rough and tumble. You know, I had to say, okay, look. Jeez, you know, I've got, I've, I know there's eight incidents I want to write about. The, that means I got to do uh, 1,500 words each, get going, and just start throwing some stuff down. And what I found out was that in that kind of rough and tumble way of writing, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy in sort of epic scale, you know, to take the events of eight days and just lay them out there uh, without being too precious about it uh, was really refreshing. And I, and I noticed, uh, it's almost like mm, I noticed how, how, pleasurable it is, again, using that word, to write about actual things or to sort of tell things in a fairly tame way for a while, that that actually allows the reader to get grounded a little bit for what's going to happen. So it was kind of just this experience of... Um, what's going to happen? But you, when you're writing the piece, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't. You know what either, happened, or, or but what's interesting is you, you don't know how you're going to shape it. And in, in some, some of the trips, there was a real natural narrative, and others there just wasn't. So you had to make that through structure. So, but it was, it was um, I think maybe, you know, it's a little bit like someone who, the example might be a cook, you know, a chef who spends 15 hours making a small meal, and someone says, can you, can you make something for us? Sure, you've got an hour. And you get to use a kumquat and a dead squirrel and a tire. Go, you know. And then the, the, what the chef will find out is that well, it can be done. It's a little different, you know. But maybe he finds out that he has a certain, you know, uh, gift that he didn't know about. So I think for me, you know, I, as I'm getting older, 
uh, I noticed that it's really, really important to, uh, you know, get yourself out of your comfort zones and especially artistically to make sure that you don't get so sure of yourself that you start painting yourself in the corners. So those trips were a great way to just say, guess what? You're a beginner. You know, you don't know anything about this and, uh, you're on a limited time frame, get going and that's it. You know, yeah. it's really fun. Yeah. It, you know, what's also interesting too, George, is I was thinking that there was, um, a voice that was sort of a, a solid voice, even um, with your fiction, even though the, the, the characters and the stories are, are, are widely, vastly different. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still there's this there's some quality about the voice that's there. Yeah. And that voice is also in your your nonfiction. And then I thought, um, well, Duh! <laughs> like well, it's your voice, right. like, and I, I don't know. Like sometimes I don't, I don't know really how to talk about these ideas of craft in in relation to voice yeah. very much. Like, well, I think I think voice tasteful or no, no, I like it. I, I'm very interested in it because I don't get it. It's confusing. But I know when I was younger, I thought what you did is you decided what kind of voice you wanted, and you went out and got it. And I think but now it's not... more like you start with. And actually, one of the exhilarating things now, but being older, is I can start with almost anything. I can throw in any junk. But by revising it, it'll kind of very slowly move back towards what you're talking about, this thing. And I, so it's been kind of a comfort to know that you don't have to decide about voice. You just start. And and just by exercising your taste over and over and over again in revisions, the thing will gradually move. And it's kind of mysterious. It'll move towards a position, I think, of more truth, more velocity, more interest, more honesty, and more you. You know. Mm. And, and the beautiful thing is if you have 15 writers all doing that, they're all going to the texts are going to move towards them, you know, individually. Uh, I, I always think it's kind of like if you somebody gave you an apartment, a, a furnished apartment, in that sort of generic furnished apartment look, and said, "Okay, now IKEA, this, yeah, yeah, this is this is <laughs> if your, you're lucky. Right, if you're lucky, right? I've had worse, but but this is yours, and you and you can have this every day. You can swap out one item, you know." And so systematically over, and this place has everything. It has little tchotchkes and it has paintings and, you know, everything. Um, very slowly, as you, as you replace items, that place is going to become you no matter what. It's going to be, you're going to be felt in it. So I think that's my philosophy on revision is that if you give yourself enough time and you go through it over and over again, you know, you go through it as your happy self. You go through it as your grouchy self, as your Hemingway-esque self, as your Monty Python self, as your, eventually through attrition by going through it it's going to move over to something that's uniquely you you know which I found really nice it meant it it took a lot of the luck out of it or the guesswork I I mean I think really more and more I I believe in that thing that I think I think Robert Frost said uh, don't worry work Mm -hmm. if you just keep pounding on it eventually it'll it'll sound like you Keep pounding. Yeah, or or pounding might be too violent a word, but just you know, but, but <laughs> there's sort that just Chekhov's say, hammer. Tap yeah. tap tap. <laughs> but I think just you know, just sort of say, yeah, you know, this draft is crappy. Well, that's okay. I I can just keep going. And and you know, I went to when I was before my first book came out. I was in this kind of desperate position. We had both daughters at this point, and I was working at an engineering company as kind of a glorified photocopy operator. And I could see my dreams of being a writer kind of fading out. You know, and uh, I went to a songwriting seminar with this guy named Mike Smith, who wrote a beautiful song called The Dutchman that Steve Goodman did. And he just was doing this sort of a seminar in some guy's house uh, up in Rochester. And he said something that I, I never forget. He said, you know, if you are uh, reviewing your own work and it makes you sick, I'm paraphrasing him in case he's listening, but, <laughs> but, but, but if, 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 you prepare, if, you, if you're reading your work or listening to your work and it makes you sick, that's really good because it means you still have taste. And if you, <laughs> right? And if you are comparing your song to Dylan's song and you know yours is worse... That's good because it means there's still a, a road by which to improve. So my feeling is that you write something, 
and it sickens you, <laughs> that's really good because it means that you can tell, you know, good from bad. And then you can start saying, okay, what is it that's making me sick? And you can say, well, you know, paragraph three is chubby. It's got a lot of waste. Oh, all right, that's easy to fix, and you can fix it. And suddenly you hate it less than you did. So the only do you enemy, ever do you ever love it though, George? Like, what do you feel about these these books here on the I table? I just feel happy that they're out, and you know, I mean, I can I I think. Uh, after I'm done with something, I love it for a, a while, you know, I, and I can read it and go, perfect, perfect, yes, that comma's in the right place. And then I notice that over the weeks and months and years, it, your grasp loosens up, and now I read something of mine, and I'll just kind of go, oh, yeah, that's kind of good. You're not, you know, not, I, I mean, I, I heard Vonnegut one time uh, at a talk saying that for him, his work was kind of like if you'd been skiing all day, you only ski around a hill, and at the end of the day, you look up and you say, oh, yeah, that's where it was in the early afternoon. That's where I was at 5 o'clock, and it's not really... You're not saying, "Oh, I'm so happy I ski that way." You're just like, "Yeah, I did that." So, kind of the map of the map of the mountain. The map yeah, and it's fun. And, and, and of course, <laughs> okay. the, the truth is, it's it's fun while you do it. That's actually the. I mean, everything else seems to kind of fall away. You know, uh, nothing really lasts. But if you if you're in a good place when you're doing it, and if doing it makes you marginally more generous that afternoon, then that's a good thing. And you know. When when you were um, despair, that's a lovely thing to say, actually, like that, and doing something that you need to do. And you said you were marginally despairing of becoming a writer when you mm. were working at that moment. Like, what what changed for you? Like, what kind of um, pushed you through that time? Well, what really happened was uh, I I started embracing the humor that we talked about earlier. I, I suddenly it, it it was almost like I had a scrim up that said, you know, thou shalt not do literature that's funny or that's uh, you know, fast or kind of contemporary, and and in my desperation, you know, of of seeing that that um whatever I was doing wasn't working, that scrim kind of dropped, and actually it, it dropped in a very particular place. I was in at my job in a conference room, and I'd been sort of I was a tech writer, and I'd been sort of um, thrown a bone, which is I got to be the transcriber of this conference call, so I'm sitting there kind of you know <laughs> some bone, <laughs> the big step up for me from the photocopier. But but I was but then there was something where I didn't need this. Something the guy just said, I'll just forget it. And so I'm sitting in the room and and uh, and I was just writing these little kind of Dr. Seussian poems, kind of silly, almost just out uh, the corner of my eye, kind of thing. And then just drawing a picture, and then I turn the page and do another one. And by the end of that session, I had about nine of these things, you know, that were just really just like dog roll kind of thing. Uh, and brought it home and threw it on the kitchen table. And then I was doing the dishes or something, and I heard my wife laughing from the other room. And that was the first time, you know, she's a writer also, and and we, you know, we we were going through some kind of hard times, money wise and stuff. And and uh, there'd been a lot of big promises by me, you know, about which the novel would save us and so on, and none of them had yet. So, it was, but it was the first time in a number of years where someone had responded to my work with actual pleasure, you know, as opposed to oh, you know, the workshop interesting, you know, or that. <laughs> so, so that was a big thing, and somehow that, and then. Um, Something a friend said to me. He just I'd written a, a kind of funny story years before, uh, before grad school, and, and he said, "You know, that was actually the best thing you've ever done." And somehow those two things, I thought, "Well, yeah, of course. Why would I um, leave my most uh, um, natural self at the door?" You know, and and, and uh, so that was a big difference. And suddenly, as soon as I gave myself permission to put the scrim down, then it was just fun. And and the the symptom of that was that I always knew what to do in a story. You know, I always, when I was huh. allowing humor and stuff, I always knew. But before, when I was trying to be Hemingway or Chekhov or whoever, or Carver, I didn't know. Uh, I didn't really know how to do it. I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing. Because it was what, like, what would, you know, what would they do? Or exactly. what would Jesus do? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't coming from, from inside. It was coming from outside. And that uh, is very stifling. So, so that was, even now, that's my main barometer. If I'm, 
if I'm lost, well, if I'm, if I'm, if I have no taste, you know, if my taste isn't kicking in, then I know I'm probably in the wrong place. Whereas when I start doing something fun, I always kind of know what to do, you know. Well, let's take a short break, George. Uh, you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Want to scratch my itch, sweet Annie Rich, and welcome me back to town. Come out on your porch or step into your parlor and I'll tell you how it all went down. Out with the truckers and the kickers and the cowboy angels and a good saloon in every single town. Oh, and I remembered something you once told me. And I'll be damned if it did not come true From Cheyenne to Tennessee We flew straight across that river bridge Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, The Living Writers Show today with George Saunders. Um, so, George, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Here we still are. Exactly. Now, where we where were we before we had we were so rudely we interrupted? Were, <laughs> we were back in the conference room in 1987. This way, and when you and when you like, well, okay, let's even go before that. Like, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Because you were an engineer, right? Mm-hmm. And you're why did you go to be an engineering student? Was it because um, you read the fo- fountain? It was or, actually, yeah, is yeah. It? I had oh, two great teachers in high school uh, who just saved saved me and got me into college and and encouraged me to go. And they had. Uh, and I think, well, one of them was a geologist, and he had always talked about the Colorado School of Mines as the best uh, earth science school in the country. So at that point, I don't think I had any interest in being an artist or, or being an English major. That all seemed way too, you know, too like, effeminate or something, you know. <laughs> so I just wanted to be Indiana Jones or something. Right. Uh, but, but actually, you know, it seemed to me like, I guess also coming out of uh, the place where I was coming from, Engineering was a valid thing to do. You know, it, it, you made things or you, you know. Right, right. Uh, but yes, and you were still making things. As a writer, you make things too. Yeah, but they're not things that can break. You know, yeah, <laughs> they're, I know. True. But I mean, at that that's point, a, it really was just ideas kind Ideas of, can't break. No, the, <laughs> I think it was, it was partly reading. Uh, I actually remember going on a uh, trip with some friends. And at that point, I think a senior year, my plan, my, my career plan was get in rock band, you know. And <laughs> that was it. And we were in this kind of bandit. And the guy who was in charge of it said he knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew a guy and the Eagles and the idea was we would practice and we would get somehow on tour opening for the band who opened for the band who opened for the Eagles this was the, and it, we were like oh yeah that sounds like a pretty good plan that, you know, that is a sure career. thing you bet, you can, just, can we can we cast a check but so I was that was my plan and I read um, Atlas Shrugged and, and, uh, on a long car trip and something clicked in and I just remember really um, this is so embarrassing but I remember thinking 
I could be I could be in college. I could wear one of those little sweaters. Wow, that would be cool. And I had <laughs> I, I literally had this idea of sitting, you know, like from that old TV show Room 222 where they were always having it was, it was set in a high school but they were always having these deep philosophical debates, you know. And I actually imagined myself in a little college sweater with a bunch of like a multiracial crew of people saying, "George, that's a fantastic idea." And and something just And tell clicked. us more, George. Yeah, that's right. That you're, you're not since Plato is anyone <laughs> So I did. So on that trip, I went. Wow, well, I could actually be a college kid, you know. And but that by that point, it was late, and I had I'd applied to the Berkeley College of Music, even though I didn't read music, and Notre Dame, even though I had a C minus average, and to a state school in Illinois, where I think the that's the really like that's brassy. That was brassy, and the requirement of the state school was, you know, you had to own your own bong or something. It was some kind of <laughs> thing like that. So, but then it, so then after this, they these two teachers got me into the place I eventually went by making a series of phone calls and stuff. So it was kind of just like. Um, it was definitely the best option I had was to be an engineer. And they engineer. believed in you. Very so you much. They're, they were so, uh, in retrospect, unbelievable that they would be able to be willing to put that much effort into someone who really at that point was just sort of a blur, you know. So, but, so when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Well, right? actually, you know, I knew kind of halfway uh, in that the, the other... T- teacher was a, a woman who I also I was kind of in love with and, and but she showed I remember uh, she You've showed been led us, by your heart yeah yeah always by crushes but she showed um film strips this is in the 70s or and film strips of famous American writers and I remember there was one of um I guess it was Hawthorne and it was just a you know a really bad cartoon drawing of Hawthorne standing in front of a tree with this you know sort of his, his head uh, his hand on his chin and she said uh something like wasn't he was a great writer and really was alive in his own time and I thought wow that would be that's something to aspire to you know to have some beautiful intelligent woman say that you were really alive in your time so so that so it was in my head but I was such again such a dunderhead and kind of so slow t- that I it didn't occur to me at that moment to say well duh that means you want to be a writer I just sort of filed it you know and then went on uh, and then I always had it kind of in the back of my mind but it didn't really become urgent uh, until I I I got sick in Asia and came home and started reading Kerouac. And I thought, I need to you know, try to do this. But even then, I wasn't reading too much contemporary stuff. And then one day I read uh, a story called Hot Ice by Stuart Dybeck. And that was the first time I'd ever read a story set. It was set in Chicago, kind of in an area that I knew. And it was the first time I'd read something that was about our time right now and yet had taken some liberties. You know, it was, it's kind of a, a, a fable. And I'll just, I don't know, just a light went on in my head, and I thought, you, sh- you can do this, and you should be doing it right now, and you're way far behind. So get, yes. get going. At that yeah. point, I was maybe 26 or 27. And, or, and is that when you applied to the Syracuse yep. um, master's program? Yeah. And then, okay. It was the first time that I actually said, you know, put your arrogance aside and admit that you don't know anything about this. And there are people who do, and you better put yourself in harness to them really quickly, or your life's going to go by. And it was really, it was a, I was wow. a terrifying thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess that's, um, it also seems to, it's, it seems to fit you, George, in a way, because that's sort of how you are living your life. Like there's this sense of urgency. Yeah, well, I'm, sense uh, can, but you know, if you're, if you're stupid and enough, beauty if, too. You're, <laughs> if you're stupid enough, urgency is often needed, you know, so for me to, to defer the great task of my life until I was 28, like, what, who does that? You know, I look around at my students or I look at people. Uh, I went to Africa with Clinton last last uh, summer and met all these people in his foundation who are 24, 25, who are in charge of 
uh, malaria eradication in Tanzania. 25 year old person, you know. So, I mean, everyone, you know, you get what you get, but I, but I know, um, for me, that was, that's a lot of the reason I pushed myself so hard now is to kind of make up for lost time and make sure that if, if I have any kind of gift, I don't waste it. You know, at at the end I can look back and go, well, you, you did your best. And, and well, do you think part of what you were doing, because I feel like you've even said it today, George, it's like some of the things that you were doing were to gather experiences, like these almost like writer's jobs yeah. or something. It's, it's they like they some, were, but, but the thing that I, and again, I'm, I don't, I don't mean to beat myself up too much, but no, but, but it's, no way. <laughs> but, but I think I was doing that very well, but what I wasn't doing uh, was reading enough. Mm. You know, so really, if you're going to be serious about this, then you need to do both things. Uh, but I do remember when I was in... Um, the oil business, I went up to Peshawar, Pakistan, and my, my goal was to get into Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. That was my little mission. And finally, after a few days of hustling, I, I was able to get a promise from these guys that they would take me in the next day. Uh, and he, the guy said, now, the only, this is when they were fighting the Russians. He said, now, the only problem is you wear glasses. And sometimes this sun glinting off the glasses will attract the Russian helicopter, so you can't wear your glasses. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of blind. He said, also, if you get hit, we have to leave you because you're extraneous. There's just this one little yeah, thing. So, so well, besides thought, okay, the glasses. Well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, and then I went back to my hotel and I remember having this kind of dark night of the soul just thinking, I mean, hear, hearing Hemingway in my head saying, you're a coward. You know, you should really do this. Just do it. Just do it. And you'll have something to write about. And then, you know, then on the other side, thinking about my parents, you know, and how, how cruel, how stupid it would be for me to get killed on this fool's mission and not even having to told him I was going to do it, you know? Right. And then there was this third voice that was really sane, and, and it said, um, why do you want to go there? And I said, because I want to be a writer. And I said, okay, how much have you written? I said, nothing. He said, duh. And the voice said, you know, not, not a literal <laughs> voice, but, but, but and there was a shining light. But it said, it said, it said, it said, was Hemingway famous because he was in war? No, a lot of people, he was famous because he had the discipline of craft. So that, that was kind of a tough pill to swallow at that point. And I felt really kind of ashamed, but uh, it was smart because basically I was saying to myself, if you want to be a writer, then you have to write. And, and that actually, you're not going to get well known because you're dashing or because you, you're, you know, you You've got this pile danger. of experiences. No, because that, that, everyone talk has a pile about, of experiences. Right. But, but the experience you want to have is the one of getting really intimate with with your own text and trying to, you know, break through and give pleasure and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, thank goodness you did that. You had I this guess, epiphany yeah. there. Yeah, I could have written you know? a great Afghan novel if I just had a little more guts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, we won't bemoan that. No. We won't like we won't spend time bemoaning that. I wanted to um just ask you what you thought about. You know how there's like blurbs on the back of all these books, yes. right? Those I did write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Walt Whitman asked, <laughs> yeah, 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 right? Yeah. <laughs> but um but one of them, I think it's in, in Persuasion Nation. Um it's it's attributed to Esquire and it says Saunders is a hilarious, wicked, and pitch perfect satirist of our times, of course. But for a satirist, he has a whole lot of heart. And when I read that, I kind of w- went harumph because I was thinking, how could you write? How could you write you satire? Went I did. <laughs> Jeez, I did. I know. Better see a doctor. <laughs> right? That would be just the surface of it. But um, <laughs> but I thought, but how could you write satire without heart? Like I was just thinking, what was this? Whoever? I mean, it's we can't blame anyone because it's like a faceless organization of a, a fine magazine <laughs> but um but you would need a heart to write well, any type of satire i don't know i mean i think this, i never really uh until the first book came out i never would even use the word satire i didn't 
thing, but then it was used and you sort of get on the bandwagon. But to me, <laughs> to me, the distinction is, you know, satire, I think in its pure form is kind of like the writer knows what's true and what's right and is, you know, heaping scorn on what's wrong. And that tends to be a little bit, in, you know, in it, um, the that's control. I mean, I don't think that's, that's not a good satire maybe, but that's kind of what I think. I think, you know, like a satire on uh, some political topic is basically just a fist coming down on it, you know. Whereas what I thought, what I still You're think I do. You're not doing that. No, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, what I what I think I'm doing is using humor to do the, you know, the standard work of the short story, which is just to oppose two truths. But um, so I never really thought of myself as a satirist particularly, and the heart part of it is really important to me, you know. But also, you know, I know for me, I'm a really incredibly sentimental, mawkish person, and not a high intellect particularly. So. Uh, mm. And and this mm. is you know my early love for sort of Khalil Gibran and and Ayn Rand and so on. It, it's I really like sincere, earnest, simple truth. So we can just get on the same team, you know. <laughs> and have have pom poms, <laughs> but against it, there's also a really dark, sarcastic streak. That you know, when we were kids in Chicago, that was just the that was just cash, you know, to be sarcastic and stuff. So really, I think in some ways, I'm just using those two things. In opposition, if I get a little too sentimental, then you put in the other thing, and it sort of offsets. It's like almost like riding a bike; you don't want to go too far left or too far right. But for me, the 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 point is always to um, really. I mean, it's just to make that little spark of pleasure, so that when someone walks away, they go, "Whoa, that was something," you know. And and uh, other than that, I'm not quite sure what what happens. And to feel something too. To feel yeah, that I mean, hold I, the pleasure. Like yeah, I mean, my model race more more and more recently is just that there's a reader walking along, you know, like a little Ken doll or something, and you <laughs> just reach down and grab him by his neck and fling him, you know, D- just fling him. It doesn't really matter what direction or how long he's up in the air, but the point is he should wake up on his bottom, going, "Wow, I I traveled a certain distance," you know, and and I don't think you really, I don't think it really. Uh, I don't think you can give too much pre-thought to which direction he's going or how, you know, it's just to get him off the ground and flying a little bit. And I think if you do that responsibly, then there are, there is this whole suite of things that happen in literature, increased awareness and kindness and all that kind of stuff. But I found that if I think about those things, it's kind of a trap. Better just to think about throwing that guy across the room in some... And yourself, you know, in some right. <laughs> throw yourself across the room. You know. Right. Maybe maybe you get to wear a jetpack. I hope <laughs> maybe so. the Kendall does it. That's always been my dream. Um, well, and so so do you think is is so you kind of you came to you've been you wrote the fiction, like mm. you've been writing these stories now for a long time mm. in this humor, and then you came to the nonfiction. Um, because uh, wh- why why did you come to it, George? Was well, it, were you invited? Yeah. Or? Well, the book is kind of a mix. There's a couple things, like there's a piece on Huck Finn that I was asked to write, but the spine of it is these pieces I did for GQ, these uh, three nonfiction pieces where w- their editors came to me and just asked if I would go on this. Well, the first one was to Dubai, this trip to Dubai. And really, I just thought it would be fun and be a challenge. And so the, I did that one and it came off all right. And then... Uh, was Mexico the next no, one? No, Nepal was, was the next. Okay. I went to see this little kid who was 15 and had been... One and I went to see him uh, meditating in the same spot without moving or supposedly eating or drinking for seven months. And uh, so that was one trip. And then the third one was to go to, I drove the whole Mexican border from east to west. And then the fourth one, which isn't in the book, uh, was this trip to Africa with Bill Clinton last summer. So they were, it was really, so, so will you continue, well, it was really what? I'm sorry. No, I mean, all of them were just, they were really, it, they were all done over the last, I think, three years. And it's just a really life-changing sort of uh, uh series of things that I'm kind of still processing both personally and art- and artistically but um, kind of a great reward for all that 
boring work in the fiction and in the in the, in the lockdown in the room, you know. So, do you have plans for other trips that are coming up? Yeah, I'm kind of I'm hoping to not do anything for three or four years just to to do some some more writing, really fiction writing. But uh, it's pretty tempting. I I'd already done that in moratorium, and then they said, "Do you want to go to Africa?" I said, "Well, with Bill Clinton." And you're like, "Ooh, ooh. all right." So yes, yeah. So yeah. never never because you're never. doing the writing. So now you can say that yeah, you should go for the experience because you've yeah. got this whole you've got this cachet of writing. Yeah, that and you've it been really doing does. You're a writer. I guess so. Writer. I guess so. But it really does open your eyes, and and you know you you do start to as you get older. The if your if your brain has a sphincter, it starts to tighten. You know, so so doing these things kind of keeps the keeps the blood flowing a little bit. And eyes open. Well, well, thank you so much for being on the show today, George. Thank you so thank you. much. And, I enjoyed um, it very much. Uh, and well, uh, you've been listening to the Living Writers Show today. Um, George Saunders, um, his his latest uh, a book of essays, The Brain Dead Megaphone. Um, Thank you to Jesse Johnston, our intrepid engineer. And uh, 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 thanks for listening in Arbor, for streaming Florida, Seattle, Chicago. Until next time. This old porch is like a, a big old red and white perfect boy Standing under a mesquite tree Out in all Dulce and he just keeps on playing hide and seek With that hot August sun Just a sweating and a pen Cause his work is never done and This old porch is like a, a steaming grease It played enchiladas with lots of cheese and onions And a guacamole salad And you can get them down at the La Salle Hotel In old downtown With iced tea and a waitress And she will smile every time And this old porch is the palace walking On the main street of Texas It's never seen the day a GNR in excess with that 62 poster It's almost faded down And a screen without a picture Since giant came to town Brown, they're going to give it to him on that left side once again to the 15. Big hole in the 20. 25-30, 35-40. Look out, 45-50. It's a foot race down the side.